Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hey, artists. Sourdough here. I want to set up this episode a little bit. In today's show, we talk to Richard Leskowski and Javier Reyna about their new movie, Region Rat. Region Rat is based on a book by the same name, written by Richard. And uh, we wanted to have them on the show because I think their story is pretty interesting. Plus, I have an emotional connection to it. Being from the Chicagoland region, born in Gary, those of us who are from that area often refer to that area as the region. And it's not a uh, term of endearment. So the region and those of us from it uh, is sort of steeped in a lot of working class values and the struggles um, that come with it. And uh, Richard wrote a book about his journey living there, growing up there. And uh, Javier discovered the book, thought it'd make a great movie. And so they embarked upon adapting the book by Richard into a movie. Interestingly, they did this movie for like $30,000, like nothing, except a lot of talent and will and tenacity and perseverance and stubbornness and creativity and ingenuity. Again, many of the same values that those of us who come from the region learn about because it's part and parcel to surviving in a sometimes tough kind of situation. So I think this is a really cool podcast. Personally, being from that area, having seen the movie, seeing myself in the movie, I was one of those kids, you know, riding around in the car, trying to score pot, trying to hook up with chicks, trying to have fun in a pretty depressing situation. So Richard's book and the movie Region Rat, I think is, is for me, uh, pretty poignant. I think they do a great job. I recommend it to all of you. You should check it out. You can stream it. Just Google Region Rat. And also, I want to point out that this podcast, this episode with Javier and Richard is the first episode that we have done via Skype. And so I'm just telling you now that the audio is a little funky in a couple of places. So just be patient and, uh, and get through it. The content is great. Uh, Javier was back East and, uh, uh, Richard, I think was in Michigan and I'm in LA. So it was a, it was an interesting call on a lot of levels. I think the content's great. The story's great. Region Rat, the movie is uh, definitely a solid story, quite poignant. And uh, you guys should definitely check it out. So anyway, without further ado, let's get the show going. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Cheers. Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Welcome to Not Real Art, series favorite creative culture podcast with the one and only Sourdough. 
coming at you without Man One today. Sadly, he is uh, too busy to be here with us. But I'm excited because we get to talk to two artists, two filmmakers who just had their movie released, Region Rat, and it is a project that I'm personally very interested in for a lot of reasons we'll get into. But I want to welcome Javier Reyna and Richard Laskowski. How are you doing, buddy? Hello. How are you? Hey, hey. Now, I probably butchered those names. Why don't you introduce yourself properly? My name is Rich Laskowski. Laskowski. There you go. And And I'm Javier Reyna. Javier Reyna. That's a very exotic name, my friend. Or Javier Reyna or whatever restaurant I'm in and they're calling me. uh, It's always something different. That's not a Gary, Indiana name. No, actually, I'm not from there. Where do you hail from, my friend? My parents were born in Mexico City. And then uh, when my parents were getting married, they didn't want my mom's name to know that it was kind of like a shotgun wedding kind of thing. So uh, they moved to Los Angeles. And I was born in Glendale, California. Back then, just to make sure my grandfather didn't notice this was a seven-year pregnancy, (laughs) seven-month pregnancy instead of nine. Then they moved to Mexico. So I grew up in Mexico City. I was born in Glendale, California. I grew up in Mexico City. Then I lived in California for about, I don't know, a few years. And then I fell in love with a girl from Indiana, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we moved to Indianapolis. And we moved there to Indianapolis for about four years. And that was the connection to Rich. Fantastic. So where are you now? I'm in uh, Seattle, Washington. You're in Seattle, Washington. Okay. Okay. And Rich, where are you? Are you you're on the East Coast now? I'm in uh, Southwest Michigan. I'm on okay. Eastern Standard Time. Got it. So Got it. I am on East Coast time. Okay. Okay. So, you know, there's so much to talk about. I'm so grateful that you guys are here today because I love your project and I love the process by which you guys, I mean, you guys have been scraping and hustling and is this has been truly a labor of love. I think most people would have probably given up a long time ago and you did not. You kept fighting and kept believing and kept hustling and working hard to get this project you know, launched. And so I want to, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that in a minute. I think it speaks a lot to even the values of 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 the region, you know, the people that that go there. You know, there's a line in your movie you talk about, you know, that we're hard to kill or something. And and it's so true. I mean, I, I will get into the movie in a minute, but I want to say, you know, you know, I want to ask you a question. I mean, did you know that Not Real Art, our podcast, is the is series favorite creative culture podcast? Did you know that? I didn't know that. It, it, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, you know, we say so in the introduction. So, you know, you know, it's true. But uh, no, we I don't know if you've listened to this podcast or not. But part of the reason why I wanted to have you guys on the show today was because our show is meant to what I call celebrate and elevate artists and designers and creatives, what I call creative professionals, people like us, like you, like me, who uh, our whole lives have been shaped and driven by our passion for culture and our love for art and design in its many forms. So our podcast is really meant to be a platform to tell these stories and elevate these stories and celebrate these stories and do it in a fun, approachable way. I think there is plenty of boring, pretentious, self-important, elitist podcast out there. And we're doing our best to try to just have 
some fun, have some friendly conversations with smart, friendly people like yourself and celebrate our common love for for creative culture. So so welcome to the show. Thank you. And it's an honor to have you here. So now I want to take a step back because I was trying to remember, Rich, exactly how you and I connected, because I know. uh, So just some some context, because I was born in Gary, Indiana. I grew up in Portage, Indiana. I graduated from Portage High School in 1988. Uh, And so somehow you and I linked up on Facebook as I recall. And so we were sort of, you know, Facebook friends, whatever that means. Then you and I heard about your movie through Facebook initially. I think you heard about our podcast through Facebook and we connected. or I think you reached out to share your project with with me. So, you know, I was intrigued for a lot of different reasons, would have been intrigued anyway. But of course, my personal connection to the region made it made it a personal thing for me. So, I, you know, I, I know this sounds hyperbolic, but, you know, I think I actually have an emotional connection to your project, which is kind of interesting. So all that being said, Rich, where exactly did you grow up in the region and when did you graduate high school? All right. I first moved to Northwest Indiana from Wisconsin. I was I was born in Chicago. Then I lived in Milwaukee until I was two, mm-hmm. and then my family moved to Valparaiso. So I went to Hayes Leonard Elementary School in Valparaiso f- until fifth grade, and my parents got divorced that summer, and we moved to Portage. I moved to Portage with my mom, and my dad went to go li- live with his father, my grandfather in East Chicago. My dad's family is from East Chicago. Mm-hmm. My mom's family is all from Hammond. And when uh, we moved to Portage, I went to Nativity. Right. So I went to Nativity all for junior high, uh, sixth through eighth grade. And then I went to Andrean for two years after that. And then I graduated from Griffith High School in 1994. In between Andrean and Griffith, I actually lived in Seattle for about six months, maybe a little over six months. So I did a semester at Inner Lake High School in Bellevue, Washington, um, and then went back to Griffith and graduated. So I kind of lived all over Northwest Indiana, you know. So I think the the song Papa Was a Rolling Stone comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) kind (laughs) of. So now, okay, Javier, uh, enough about Rich, man. You know, we're sick of this guy already, aren't we? Javier, tell us a little bit about your backstory. I know you said you were born in Mexico City. I think you were raised in, in Mexico City for the most part. Take us again through kind of the days, weeks, months leading up to you meeting Rich and how you guys specifically connected. Okay. First of all, you have to know that this project started back then when Netflix just to buy movies for movies back then we used to say i have a movie and they're like we'll buy it back then it's a good time and we thought i had friends who had uh, sold movies to companies like netflix which was the only one back there when they will send out the dvds remember in the mail and we thought we could do something anyway i had moved to indiana because my wife and i had a couple babies and since her parents were in fort wayne we thought it would be nice to have grandma and grandpa around and because there was no really a uh, film industry in Indiana, I thought maybe I could jumpstart something. So that was kind of like two motivations to move there. And I made a couple of short films. And one short film 
was kind of successful. He went to the festival circuit. We got a few awards. And the same person who asked me about, who financed that short film, asked me about what was my next project. And I knew I wanted to do a feature. So I started to looking for projects. I don't like to write. I hate to write. I hate, especially at that time, I hated to write because I am not a born writer. I just can't do it. can make up stuff. <laughs> so I kept asking for people. I went to the uh, agencies for scripts. Mm-hmm. And that was a time of The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And everything I got were copycats from The Sopranos. Some mob guy going after some guy and a prostitute. And so, uh, somehow all the scripts went around that. So one time I was at Starbucks where I do all my writing. And I was talking to a friend. Her name is Kila. And I had just shot a music video for her boyfriend back then. And as we were talking about it, I told her I was looking for a project. And Kila said, you know what? I want to talk to you today. So she met me at Starbucks and says, I knew a guy in high school. He was a bit of an asshole. He was interesting. Was that me? I kind of had a crush. <laughs> I, yeah, I had, I had a crush on him a little bit. But he wrote a book. And I read the book. And, and I feel like you might find a movie there. I think there's something. So I have gone through so many scripts. I was ready to look for products and uh, Chinese cookies, looking for something. And I say, if you put me in contact with the guy, I'll, I'll read the book. And within the next couple of days, I was exchanging emails with Richard. And he asked me to watch the last show I have done. I asked him for his book and I read the book. And, you know, books are thick and uh, movies got to be a lot thinner. And I just thought, you know, what I loved about the book, it was... The truth, blunt honesty, no apologies. You know, this is what it is. Usually a lot of people victimize themselves. And I just, I guess the bluntness of the story, even though I knew it was semi-biographical, which is part of it is based on true events, part of it is just fictionalized. Just thought, you know, this guy is not like writing. It's like blogging. It's just telling things the way they were. And there was a section of the book that was talking about a tragedy that happened while he was back in, in Griffin. And I found there was a heart in there. And I took that and asked, I, I pretty much gone, went to Rick and I, Rich and I said, do you ever read a script for this? And then he said, I'd rather pour, what do you say? I'd rather pour, pour uh, boiling oil into my eyeballs than look at this stuff again. <laughs> and then I said, you know, will you let me write an adaptation? And he said, yes. And that was the beginning. It was, uh, we're talking about 2004. And I wrote the adaptation for the script. And that was the beginning of it. Well, the beginning was the book, right? Right. And and right, and so Rich, yeah. Well, and really though, Rich, the beginning was Rich was you know, being story. being born into this world via his mother and father on that hot summer night. But that's a whole another story we won't get into. Rich, your book, I haven't read it, so I'm just putting it out there right now. Unfortunately, I have not read it. Based on what I have read about it, and based on what I have read about you and some of your comments, you know, talking about the book. It almost sounds to me like you wrote the book as a uh, exercise in catharsis, almost uh, your own self-induced therapy. <laughs> you know, talk about that. Talk about why you wrote the book. Did you write a book before and have you wrote a book since? I mean, why did you have to write Region Rant? All right. Well, I didn't know when I was writing it, I had no idea I was writing Region Rat or a book or anything like that. When I was in high school, I was a little bit interested in writing and I would write short stories you know, just for myself in like a journal. But it wasn't really anything I ever talked about because 
frankly, sometimes being an artist in Northwest Indiana isn't anything that you brag to your friends about in high school. Some people tease you, you know, about it or whatever. So I certainly didn't let anybody read anything I did or talk about it. But it's not a real job, Rich. Yeah, I know. Get a a job down (laughs) at the USX. Yeah, I know. That's exactly it. But I, I wanted to leave Indiana and I did leave Indiana when I was I went to Purdue Calumet for like a year in Hammond. And then I, and then I knew a friend in Seattle who was actually from Black Oak. And I moved out and lived with him when I first moved back out there. And after a while of being out there, I really had a hard time making friends because people on the West Coast, everything was different. Like, you know, everything looked different. People talked different. Everyone had a different sense of humor than I was used to. And I would just work and I had a hard time making friends. And so for fun, I would just go back to my apartment and I had just gotten a little, like a computer that had Microsoft Word on it. And the internet had just been invented and we had like 28K dial up. So I would just go back to my, I would get off of work. I was a cook at a restaurant and I would get off of work and I would grab a 40 at the corner store under my, in the building under my apartment. And then I would go upstairs and smoke a bowl and sip on my 40 and just kind of practice writing. And it first started out as sometimes I would uh, look at books that I was really interested in, say on the road, for example, or like Ham on Rye, for example, from Charles Bukowski. And I wanted to learn how those people wrote. And I had read somewhere that to find your own voice, you first have to mimic other people's voices before you can find your own voice. So I would literally have a book open and I would type out like a whole chapter, you know, onto a Word document. And it gave me a sense of how do these people use description and how do these people use dialogue to tell a story? And once that started to click in my mind, I started to not really write a story or write a book, but I started to write scenes. So I would, you know, listen to a funny story. Say I would talk to someone back home from Indiana and they would tell me a funny story about, oh, remember when we wanted to you know, take someone's car and get, you know, fake like it was stolen and get the insurance money and we beat it up and then we got cold feet and whatever. I would hear like a funny story and I would I would just jot it down. And back then I had a really good memory, so I could just jot down like two or three sentences and I could go to work and look at these two, three sentences and, and remember the story that my friend told me or maybe it was my own memory. And I would just try to write that out. And a lot of times when you, you know, when you write that out initially, it's not as entertaining, you know, as when someone's just telling you a story because, you know, it's audio and it's visual and they're telling you the story. But when you're just writing something down on a page, you really have to add more to it to bring it to life. So I would rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until I felt like, you know, it was alive, like it was a scene, you know, like you could read it and picture it. And after a while, after a couple of years, I had like, I don't know, hundreds of these scenes 
hardly connected to each other at all, with the exception of a lot of them were based on my memories and a lot of them were based on stories that my friends told me from Northwest Indiana. So my next evolution in teaching myself was I have all these scenes. There's some similarity between them with characters and place. Can I connect two of them together? You know, can I learn how to do that or can I connect three? So I started connecting them together and through connecting them, you had to rewrite them together as one. And oftentimes when you're doing a surgery on a manuscript, you know, you're also writing new scenes to make it work. So I just kind of did that for fun. I was just like learning to write and wanted to do, I didn't want to, I wasn't setting out to write a book or publish a novel, or call it Region Ride, or hopefully have a movie made someday. I just was doing it because probably the same way a musician likes to jam out on their guitar, you know, or play a song that they love. You know, for me, when I sit down and write, I, I'm i kind of like an anxious person in life. I have a lot of worries and a lot of stress. So for me, when I sit down and write, I can block all that out for like, you know, an hour or two. And it's just fun for me to try to tell a story. And I'm not the best writer in the world, certainly not the most educated guy in the world. But one thing that I write from my heart and I steer the story with my brain. And I think what a lot of people do when they're overly educated and they go to get a master's degree in creative writing, they write from their brain and they try to steer it with their heart. You know, they try to do what is correct first, and then they try to add, you know, some life into it. With me, I just write, you know, exactly how I how I feel about stuff and kind of, you know, shape it from there. It's probably not the best way to do it. It took me seven years to write Region Rap before I was done with it, and I was like, wow, I'm done putting these scenes together, and I've got this whole story from beginning to end. I can't do anything with this anymore. And so then I just started sending it out to try to get published. And I got rejected, I don't know, 99 times. And then one place said, yeah, it was a small press and called Six Gallery Press mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And at the time they published experimental fiction. So they thought, you know, they thought it'd be cool to put out my book just exactly the way I wrote it and the way I edited it. And I'm not an expert. I'm not, you know, a masterpiece novelist or anything like that. So my story is kind of a, a raw emotional story. You might feel anxious from reading it. You <laughs> might feel a lot of stuff in it that bothers you, some stuff you like. But it was just the way I expressed myself at the time when I wrote it. Question, do I get an autographed copy? Sure, I can send you one. Okay. I've got, I've got four left, so I can send you one of them. <laughs> well, that would be that would be amazing. And I'll even pay you for it, unlike a lot of people out there, deadbeats. Javier, so, you know, that was, you know, it's fascinating to hear Rich's story and his journey to becoming a writer. And I want to go back, Rich, in a minute and talk a little bit more about that. But Javier, how did you get into filmmaking? Well, I always loved film. I, my mother was a film lover. There was. Hey, uh, sorry, do you hear that baby toy going off <laughs> under my desk? <laughs> that's, sorry, hold on. That, see, uh, that's the human element that we we like to bring to the sorry. show. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I got that. I got kids too. <laughs> Have you guys ever did you did you ever see that video that went viral 
where that CNN talking head was speaking online live. Oh, God, with uh, the mom and the babies. From, from, well, he, he was speaking live from his home office with the door shut. But then as he's speaking very seriously about some sort of geopolitical issue, I saw that. His, his kid runs in and then the nanny started. Oh, it's just classic. It's the mom. Yeah. The mom comes oh, in the, and the drives the kids okay. out and freaking out. Oh, that's the, that's yeah. the video of it. Anyway, we digress. Uh, Javier, your <laughs> so, mom was uh, a, a movie aficionado. I, I hope yeah, you guys watch Roma, the film. Embarrassingly, don't tell my wife this because she works for Netflix. I have not seen it yet. Okay. She works for Netflix. Okay. I'm going to jolt that down right now. (laughs) Amazingly, Alfonso Cuaron grew probably, based on what I've heard, probably about five blocks from where I grew up. And part of the movie got to me because he, there is a scene where he shows a long street that does, I mean, still exists, but doesn't look anything like that. And then they had to recreate it and they go to a movie theater. And that was the movie theater where I went to watch Jaws. And when I went, I watched that movie, I was 11 years old, and I knew this was my passion. I went straight across the street, a few blocks down to Sears. I bought the cassette tape, and I will play that over and over on John Williams' soundtrack. But even before that, my, there was another movie theater, more like a second-run movie theater that would play two movies, three movies at the time. And people just go in and start watching three movies. And my mom would always go with her mother and her sisters, and they will drag me in. And I will sit and watch. I think about this a five year old watching Ben Hur and the Ten Commandments back to back. It was torture. <laughs> but that's where I started. So there was no way out but me to fall in love with movies. Are uh, you a religious I, fan, Javier? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But I mean, I, I think I know why. <laughs> three three movies, you know, three hour long movies. But I went there to see so many movies, and every Thursday was the same routine. But Jaws was at the other ex- expensive theater, the first run theater, and that really blew my mind. And that's when I got hooked. However, as probably Alfonso Cuarón could tell you in those days, I mean, it sounds like he went to the university, but as I was growing up, if you weren't connected, getting to the business was even tougher than here because it's a very small circle. So honestly, I kept thinking about doing things, and I remember uh, loving Starsky and Hutch, the TV show. And I will plan, I'm going to put the car here. My friend had a BW bug, and he was kind of blonde, and I had curly hair. I go, oh, he could be Hutch, and I'm Starsky, and we can... I just wanted to reshoot that scene in my mind. I will start, before music videos, I will imagine all this music, and I will imagine all this stuff that I could do, but I didn't know how. You probably heard of Steven Spielberg, the, he's... No, told his no, dad never never <laughs> well the, the story of steven spielberg they said i want to do something and his dad said here's a camera right right okay i told my dad can i just use your camera you know what he said no, no. you're gonna fucking break it <laughs> you're fucking you're gonna break my fucking camera you can't borrow it yeah so that was the end of my film career and then i he uh, was so, right though you totally would have broken it yeah probably yeah <laughs> then when i was a teenager i was able to work as an extra in a few movies and then uh, finally, uh, when I turned 21, I moved to California and I was still just dicking around. It was always like in the back of my head, but never serious because to me, it was just like thinking about going to Mars right now. It was that far, even though that people somehow fell into it. For me, it wasn't like a, a real thing. And then I went to watch City Sleekers with Jack Palance and Bill Crystal. And there is a scene where Jack Palance's character tells Mitch, which is Bill Crystal, you know, you guys worry about a lot of shit, you see the people. Because the most important thing in life is is this. And he says, what is that, your fingers? No, just one thing. And he goes, what is that thing? He goes, 
is whatever you want. But once you know what that is, you ground to it and everything else means shit. And that's what clicked to me. Like, yeah, why am I, you know, why not? Fuck it. And I start focusing and trying to, to do it. And I will go to AFI and volunteer in exchange for uh, time and seminars and workshops. I did a couple of classes at the Junior Valley College in LA. I got kicked out because I will not show up because I had to work. I was working at Bally's back then, Holly Hill Spa. And it was just a process of little by little doing little things. And eventually I, I was lucky enough because I was one of those guys that will sneak into Sony Studios, pretending that I, you know, I'm just going to work. And I will be going into the sets and the sound stages. And eventually two guys will drag me by the arms and kick me out of the studio. I did it a few times until one guy that I call, his name is Jimmy Honore. He was executive vice president of post-production in Sony. And he was like, what the fuck are you doing, man? And I told him, you know, when I get into movies, I have no idea where to start. And he was kind of my mentor. Right away, he got me a job. And I was working post-production with Barbara Streisand on uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces. And then The Devil's Own with Harrison Ford. And I was able to meet a bunch of people. And then he helped me when I was trying to do my first film. And he will help me find me, you know, sound equipment, stuff like that. So that was kind of like my my schooling. I didn't go to a film school or anything like that. It was on the job working in independent films a lot and kind of making my way until I realized I didn't like working for people. I always had these agreements with the directors when they were doing their movies. So, so doing projects on my own. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Rich said something a minute ago that resonated with me. He talked about, you know, how in the region in Northwest Indiana, you know, calling yourself an artist isn't necessarily the best way to get laid or something. I mean, you know, like, like, like what, well, maybe it is the best way to get laid, but it's also a really good way to get, get punched in the face because nobody really respects. Well, let me, let me be careful with my words here. It is a working class blue collar area. Right. And so working as an artist, when I grew up in the seventies and the eighties there, you would hear this phrase like, well, you need a real job. And working in the arts wasn't necessarily considered a real job. I had a friend who was a musical genius, a piano prodigy, and people would always say, well, when are you going to get a real job? You know? Right. Exactly. Uh, so the point is, is that, you know, Rich, you know, you walked around maybe being a bit shy about being an artist. Javier, I don't know how you sort of interacted with that label, but at what point in your guys' lives did you, A, realize you were an artist, and B, then t start telling people you were an artist? Because those could be two totally different times, right? Okay. Like, So when in life did you feel like an artist and you realize, maybe I'm an artist. I think I'm an artist. Hey, I'm an artist. And then when did you guys start talking about it? Go ahead, Rich. Okay, so I've never felt like an artist and never told anyone <laughs> that I was an artist. You've heard it's it here always... first on uh, Not Real Art Breaking News. <laughs> yeah, so I've always, you know, lived a struggle life, you know, Sounds outside, like outside of even when I was in, in Seattle on, on the West Coast, the West Coast was cool. I was there for 10 years or so. But I really I, I when I was out there, I got married young. I had kids young and I was just working my ass off all the time in restaurants, you know, exhausting, funny work, working with really interesting people. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I couldn't like 
dissect my book and tell you exactly, but I'm sure there are at least several or a dozen conversations that I probably had with restaurant workers that I just took home and put into dialogue in Region Rat. But just funny stories that people would, would say, but writing was always something I did on the side. It was always something I did when I had time. Even to this day, now I have two wives later and, and five kids. It's still a struggle to get by every week to pay my bills, just to keep my house. There's a lot of stress that goes along with it. So I don't, I don't really have time in my life where I sit down and write on a certain day or for a certain amount of time. I will write a lot when my life is less stressful than others. You know, when, when all my bills are paid for a while, maybe I have all my bills paid for a month. I feel pretty good. And I might write four times a week, four nights a week for an hour. Or when I'm stressed out, I may not write at all for three months. But luckily for me, I always write. And I've never been a victim of writer's block. I can always sit down and write when I can get the time and sit in front of the computer and my mind is I'm not gripped with anxiety when I'm feeling okay I can just sit down and write I've never had a problem with that and I've been writing ever since I published Region Rat I wrote a I actually when I wrote Region Rat I was so sick of writing that I just wanted I couldn't believe I published a book it was so funny to me that I actually published a book and it was funny to my friends that I actually published a book and I just didn't want to write anything at all and I played Xbox for like two years for fun. I just played Xbox and I was just like, yes, I never have to worry about putting another book together if I don't want to. I never have to go through that again, that that emotional torture. And it's such hard work, you know, especially me being untrained as a writer. It's really hard for me sometimes to put down on the page what I'm thinking and I really had to learn what can I do, what am I capable of as a writer, and what am I not capable of as a writer. And I'm pretty good at recognizing that. And so I, when I do write stories, I stick with what I'm good at, which is probably writing dialogue. So my book, Region Rat, and the stuff I write now is really heavy on dialogue, super heavy on dialogue and light on description or and sometimes light on narrative. But... Just something I've never really called myself an artist before. I never really called, if you didn't know me very well, if you weren't interviewing me because of this movie and we just met somewhere, you'd probably have to talk to me five, six, seven, eight, nine times before I even ever told you that I wrote a book or was interested in writing for fun. I, if you brought it up in a conversation, I might be like, oh yeah, dude, I do that too. You know, (laughs) but still to this day, I don't know what it is, but I just don't. Maybe it's because I'm in the Midwest and and I'm not around a lot of people. I don't know any writers personally that I see in the day, you know, in real life. I don't see people who are writers. I may know musicians here and there. I may know someone who paints, you know, but as far as being involved in any kind of art culture, I've never really been Never really been in a situation in my life where I've been able to just throw myself into that. 
I wonder how many writers in your neighborhood are thinking and saying the same things. And if you started a writer's, you know, workshop, a writer meetup, I wonder how many people would come out of the uh, woodwork uh, there. And you might be surprised at the amount of uh, closeted uh, writers uh, you have in the 20 mile radius of, of where you're at. Yeah, there's that. And to tell you the truth, though, so I wrote a book. It was bad. Then I rewrote it and it was decent. Then this is after Region Rat. Then I rewrote it again and I thought it was cool. So now I've been working on the same book probably for like five years. I've got literally like a 700 page novel <laughs> that, that I'm just I'm writing for fun. Yeah. I don't care. I've never cared about anyone reading what I write until I'm done. So to me, like when for me to share what I'm working on before I'm done appreciating it, for me, it kind of zaps the romance out of it. So right. I never show anything like when I'm writing to friends or to family, because those people are just going to say, oh, that's funny or that's cool. They probably didn't even read it. You know, they just tell you what you want to hear, or maybe they tell you, maybe they try to give you some construction, constructive criticism. But I don't really write with a purpose of, What's going to happen at the end of the road? Am I going to publish a book? What, what is this 700-page document? Is it a TV show? Is it two movies? Is it four books? What is it? All I know is I'm telling a story, and right. I'm not done with it yet. And the more I have fun telling the story, the more I shy away from writing an ending. I just keep going and going and going. But so, that's, that's not. I would not recommend doing that to anyone. I would not recommend... <laughs> writing the way I write to anyone, but I just don't, I don't write with a purpose of trying to be an author or trying to publish books or wanting to, you know, wanting people to think that I'm a writer or any of that. I just do it because it makes me feel better. And I was luckily, lucky enough to, you know, Javier came across my book by chance and I can pretty much guarantee you if he had never approached me, there'd never be a movie. There'd never be someone else that came along and said, hey, we like this, too. We're going to we want to make a movie out of this, too. That never would have happened. It's total, total chance and luck in life that yep. uh, people even know who I am because I'm not I'm not the most talented guy in the world. That's for sure. Rich, you are so from the region, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. we are so uh, we are cut from this cloth that is like so practical and pragmatic and and errs on the side of of air insecure, really, sometimes because, you know, but yet at the same time, you know, we are some of the strongest, smartest, toughest people I know. It's always I, listening to you talk. You're reminding me of so many of conversations that I've had with other friends from the Midwest who, by the way, still live there. You know, didn't necessarily move away or whatever. They have so much talent. They have so much intelligence. But for some reason, they have these kinds of narratives in their heads about what an artist is or what an artist isn't or what they are or what they aren't. And I don't know. It's 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 a very grounded perspective that we region rats have, I think. Not always fair, not always accurate, but 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 tend to be on the side of uh, self-deprecating. But Javier, how old were you when you sort of felt like you were an artist and sort of started talking about that? Um, hasn't, hasn't happened yet. I always thought an artist was an intellectual. 
you know, somebody with a master's degree or an amazing painter. To me, film was always just like playing, playing with toys. I just some joyful thing that comes from inside. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating because you work, you know, for years trying to make this movie. And after they shoot the movie, we spent two years trying to get the movie out. But those four weeks that we were in production, to me, I'm just in some limbo state where I don't, I don't even eat. You know, they got to remind me to eat because it's just a very emotional roller coaster. I just look at the screen and I will see the actors performing and I just, it's like a high. Some people have a run at high. I hate running and I hate people. <laughs> but, it, but, but there were scenes where I will be watching Connor performing the character and I'll see everything, those little scenes perfectly come in the way I will hope they will come and you just feel this high and I'm just addicted to it. Yeah, It's not after or before, it's just those moments when we're shooting and the light is beautiful and just, I don't know, it feels great. And during those moments, it doesn't feel, I'm just focused, narrow focus on getting those things the way I imagine them and going from my imagination to see them come to reality with the help of this artist that, that I consider artist like my cinematographer, Carlos Jimenez. I mean, that's an artist. This is a guy who's, I tell him, this is what I would like to do here. And we have like no budget and not enough lights. And <laughs> the crew we get in is, is guys that I just got from things like Craigslist. Okay, who wants to learn film? And then he'll be, this is my crew. Yeah, I go, there's one problem. They don't know anything about it. So he will have, he was training electricians and grips while he was working. He'll be like, can you please give me that uh, wagon? No, the wagon, fuck, I'll do it. And he will just go and do it. And these guys will learn. And again, like in the case of Carlos, I will say, okay, this is what I would like here. And he, he will have no equipment and all that. He'll just look at me and goes, fuck. And then he'll go, Hmm. And then his brain start working, his knowledge, his artistic qualities, and then he'll come and do this beautiful shot. But me, an artist, I know I'm just a highly emotional and under the educated middle-aged man. <laughs> Let me accept self-load. Right in well, it, it, you know, but this, yeah, but this conversation reminds me of of a conversation years ago, a debate I was having with somebody about the origins of the Old Testament and why Moses couldn't have written the books in the Old Testament as legend proclaimed, because I think it's Moses. They say in the book, it says something like, well, Moses was the wisest man that ever lived. And I always said, well, if he's that, I don't think if he's that wise, he would call himself the wisest person that ever lived. Like right. would a wise person say they're wise? <laughs> no, that's for somebody else to say. Uh, unless he's an arrogant <laughs> asshole, and I, Moses doesn't strike me as an arrogant asshole. Maybe he was. I don't know. But I the point is, story thinking about. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've been thinking yeah. about that story because I was reading the Bible. No, I wasn't reading the Bible. I was watching the Ten Commandments and TV. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, when he took all these poor people, was that a thirty or four year trip? Is that correct to the Promised Land? What Moses? Oh, took when them? they were like lost in the wilderness. Yeah. I think it was like, like forty four, years. Supposed to be forty years lost. And in the I was wilderness. thinking. Yeah. At what point, I will say by the six-year mark, you go, dude, do you know where you're going? <laughs> where the fuck are we going? I mean, who follows somebody for years? Anyway, but yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I, having, having, very, have, having a lot of Jewish friends, I totally know why they were, like, not going far for very long. Because they were arguing about going with this direction or that direction. <laughs> we don't know what direction to go. We can't agree. I, 
anyway, what I'm getting at is, you know, I love your guys' answers about, you know, being an artist or not being artist because you're basically saying, like, who am I to call myself an artist? Leave it. Let's leave it to, you know, the others to call yourself an artist. I'll tell you then, you know, you're both artists. And that's why you have that artist spirit. You have that artist character that, you know, that is sort of rooted in this sort of humility that that can sometimes be incredibly self-deprecating and borderline unfair and inaccurate, right? Okay, so enough of all of this. Javier, I want to talk about the movie. All right. Like the process of making the movie. I personally never made a movie, so, you know, I don't, you know, know the ins and outs. I've been around the business. I've been around movies. I sort of have a little bit of insight here and there. You know, one of the things that I was so, you know, impressed by, quite frankly, is that I think I read somewhere that your budget was $35,000. Like you you made the movie for $35,000. Is that number correct? Yes. By the time we finished and sent it to festivals and all that stuff, all those expenses, we probably were up to $55,000. But again, this film, if I were to pay everybody where they were shoot it, earn which means at least a minimum minimum wage, probably been a $500,000 movie just on its face value. Sure. Uh, there were a lot of people sacrificed it because they believed in the movie. And they say, you know, I'm willing to put my time. So when there's money coming back, I'm willing to now pay them what I was supposed to pay them. But up front, yeah, we're thinking we had about $35,000. But again, this is the story of 14 years because the movie the budget of the film changed dramatically. In 2004, when a production company had it, and ICM and UTA were all involved in the movie, that film was 3 to $5 million. Right. And through the years, it went up and down, up and down, until the movie came back to me in 2012. And I told Rich, you know, all these high expectations we had, all the music from Nirvana that we wanted to have in the movie, because his book had these great references about the music he listened to. And I go, oh, this is part of the story. And his book was the Bible. For me to follow that story, that's his story. And I was going to be as loyal as possible to tell his story. It wasn't my story. It's his story. So my job was just to bring it to a different medium. And when the film came to me, I said, okay, well, we have two choices. After all these years, even we don't do anything, or I'll just do it and just get it done as close as possible there will be a lot of compromises which for somebody as a stubborn as me is very very maybe i don't know what i want but when i know what i want is you you can't move me and rich said just do whatever you can so i had some investors coming up with about 50 grand and then two weeks before production they say oh you have to take these scenes off and i will say why oh because we don't need them and i go i need them that's why i left them there in the movie i already had toned down the script, took like 16 scenes off to make it work. And I walked from that. Mm. We already had this, the sound stage and everything ready, and I walked from that. So when we started shooting the movie, I had $16,000. And I just hoped that things was going to you know, come through. Some investors came through. I had an old van that we used to move equipment around. As soon as we finished that, I sold the van. When I will use something and sell it so we can keep financing the movie to recycle the money, uh, recycling the money around. So yeah, that was the hardest thing because money buys your time. To me, that's all it means. Money just buys your time. And we had very little time 
we shot for about probably 17 full days, it's supposed to be 20, but a lot of days will be half days because when there is no finance, you can never lock your stuff ahead of time, lock your locations, they want to advise us. So most of the time we'll be in the evening looking for the location for the next day, which was kind of stressful and it wasn't fun. But that was the part of doing it at this level. Yeah. So, so you mentioned one, at one time UTA and CAA or ICM had a part of this. Like, what was what was that? Well, that was pretty funny because I was working with Tim Pedernell, which is a very respected producer in the indie world. Mm-hmm. If you look him up, Timothy Wayne Pedernell. He uh, read the script and he said, "Um, man, this is." I was in Indiana still. The script got to him through a friend. He said, "This is this script, the dialogue, and all that's better than stuff we already made." So. I came to LA again and we signed a contract and we started working development. At that point, what they really wanted to do, and I understand why now, they wanted a star to be the main character, a famous kid. Yeah. It's very hard to find an 18 year old movie star that you can afford. If they're famous, the studios already have. So we made an offer to a couple of people that were well known. While all that was happening, because you submit an offer for an actor, you might not hear for months but you can uh, go and offer it to somebody else because you're waiting for this one. In the meantime, ICM, UTA, and Endeavor at a certain point wanted to make sure that each agency was the one supplying the majority of the cast because there's a lot of characters in the movie. So I will go and get a call with, for instance, with ICM. And ICM will say, oh, we love the script and we want to make sure our kids are in your movie. Very nice people and all that stuff. And one day I got a call from uh, Robert Newman which is a very big agent. And he told me the same thing. Film was at the top of their independent division. And they asked me if I had a representation. And I'm like, no, I don't have representation. And then I had the same conversations with UTA. A girl calling me and saying, me, hi, honey, how's the movie going? Oh, my God, I love this script. It's going to be such a wonderful movie. And I just want to tell you that from now on, we're going to be talking every day. And I noticed the question was always there. How's the financing coming? How's the financing coming? As we were working with Tim, they got in, involved with Rob Schneider to do a movie where Robert Schneider was going to direct. Oh, jeez. And that slowed down the project. And then I told Tim, you know, it's going to be another six months. Can you let me out of my contract? Because I just want to keep going. And him and his partner, David, were kind enough to say, all right, go do whatever you have to do. The moment that happened, UTA vanished. ICM vanished. Never called me back. Never returned my calls. It was really weird. It's just, I don't understand the business, the way it works that way. But the interest was absolutely gone from them. And then I will go to another company. And all of a sudden, I started getting people from calls from other groups. It's just weird. It's just, it's just a weird, like a microwave. You, you get there, you get inflated, then you get burned and disappears. So yeah. that's why after 10 years of that, I mean, Rich and I went through a lot of stuff. They went through a lot of independent producers, people from New York. They will say, hey, somebody, uh, what was his name? Glenn something met Rich and say, oh, I, I read your book. I heard about the movie. We're in New York. We want to produce it. Remember those guys? No, Rich? they all run together for me. I don't remember. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> those guys will say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to have a phone call. Okay, tomorrow at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a conversation with everybody. Then at that t- time, my friend producer, Kent, and I are sitting around waiting for the phone call, and it doesn't happen. We call him two hours later. I'm sorry, guys. We forgot about the call. But we're still oh. excited about talking about the movie. So the next time we talk again, and they sound very excited, 
and they send, send us a contract. And then we look at the contract and the contract looks like something for a real estate agreement, nothing related to the movie. And the movie actually has a different title. And I told the guys, you know, this doesn't look right. This just, you sent me the wrong thing. Okay, well, just write notes on what you want to do and send it to us back. Send it back to us. So we did that. And we sent it back. And I didn't hear back from them in six months. And about six months later, they called me and said, hey, so what's going on? I go, well, you never reply. Yeah, we've been busy. Can you send me that paper again? And we said, forget it. So things like that happen over and over and over. We got the hippie from Key West. Remember that one? Do you remember what the title was that they wanted to use? Do you recall? No, oh, no, okay. no, no, it wasn't sure. even related to the movie. Oh, okay. It was just some title. <laughs> okay. And we got a, a rich hippie from Key Florida also. with These weird people that will come to us and then, can you do a little more sexy stuff? And can you can you change the movie this way and that way? But it was just exhausting going through all these things. That's why eventually we say, you know, even if it's not big, we're just going to do it the way we want to do it. Yeah. We might lose. We lost about 16, 17, but 20 scenes that I lost that I missed terribly. There, there, you know, the it, it, it seems to me, based on my experience, Hollywood and the entertainment business is like flypaper for scoundrels. You know, fly, fly, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and, you know, and so your stories as horrific and, and horrible as they are sound completely normal. Oh, I'm I mean, sure, yeah, you know I'm sure I mean? this like, happens to people every day. Oh, yeah, this is how it is. Right. It's why they call it Holly weird. But, you know, but see, this is, again, why I love your story and love this project, because it is a testament to the kind of grit and the kind of commitment that resonates with me about this project being from that area because i feel like growing up in the midwest growing up in in northwest indiana being born in gary growing up in portage seeing my dad work a job that he hated out of loyalty to his family mm -hmm. all those things the work ethic you know this stick to and this loyalty to the project resonates with me because i feel like those are the kinds of values that i respect anyway but then those are the values that I saw in the movie. And then even in, you know, but but those values come from the people that make the movie, right? And you guys personify that. And the story, I mean, 9.5 out of 10 people would have given up. And you guys stayed in it and you stayed in it and you kept at it. And, you know, when people hear that the movie was made for anywhere from 35000 to $55,000, they might imagine that, well, that's cool and all, but the movie probably doesn't look good or it doesn't, you know, it's probably not that great or whatever. And one of the things that I really appreciated in watching the movie was that it felt like it was made for a lot more money. And it seemed as though the people making the movie were professional enough to be disciplined and self-aware enough to be disciplined and work and create a movie within very real constraints that serve the story and serve the output, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? It's like, but there was such goodness going in that the final product transcends, you know, all the challenges. And I just, I don't know, like when I watched the movie, I just felt like, wow, these guys were really disciplined. They were really self-aware. 
They worked really hard to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. And it just felt like a really mature production, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you mean, yeah. I mean, the, the discipline came from people that because it, nobody in this show was there for the money. So number one, they right. wanted to do it. They just wanted to do it, say, oh, I want to do this. Even if it costs me money, I'll do it. People, I know my producer, Johnny, I mean, he made a lot of sacrifices. His wife and his daughter were on the help yeah. setting stuff yeah. out, like props, stuff like that. You don't, Javier, not to interrupt, but the word I don't think I use, I want to make sure I use, is that the quality of the product did not suffer because of the budgetary challenges. And on top of that, I was so lucky because I've been friends with Marcus Trump, the composer, mm -hmm. for years. He was supposed to score a film for me years and years ago, and things didn't happen. And when this came out, Mark has just been rising like foam and working with Marco Beltrami. And he was, as I was finishing the movie, he was about to do the soundtrack for Logan, mm. you know, another X movie. Mm -hmm. And once I finished the movie, we're done with the editing. And I was like, I don't know if this guy is going to still want to do it. And he called me and goes, dude, don't ever doubt it. I'm doing your movie. He jumped from Logan. He was supposed to take a vacation. And he jumped into this movie. So wow. this is somebody who just elevated the movie in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. And you hear the soundtrack of the movie, mm -hmm. the, the the score. It was Sol Marcus. And because he knew we couldn't afford a, an orchestra, like I would want a 60-piece orchestra, he will use samplers and record every instrument himself, orchestrated everything, and it came out gorgeous. Wow. And he brought wow. feelings to the movie, which yeah, is 100%. what the music does. Well, so the you know, the the other element that resonated with me that was so obvious to me is that, you know, because the acting and the actors were so well cast. I mean, because I was looking at it, well, A, I mean, I knew it was an indie movie, so I knew I didn't know what the budget was, but I knew that, you know, it's an ind independent movie. So the budget probably is not that, you know, significant. But the actors felt and I don't think there was any I didn't th I don't think I recognized anybody in it, mm -hmm. but the acting was solid. And the uh, actor, I thought the casting was really great. Those the faces match the words, match the actions like there was great alignment. I felt like in the casting. Who who did well, the casting? I did. I had to do it. My casting director was too expensive. You're like the, the Javier, you're like the Swiss Army knife of movie making. <laughs> well, see, this is what I envy people like Rich because he can sit and write a book. I need a full orchestra to do something. You know, you need a bunch of people to do different things. So it's an infrastructure. It's like building a building. You need this and you need that. And and, and oh, I can't do it myself because otherwise it doesn't work. But uh, my casting director, Shannon, wanted to do it, and she worked for years in this movie. By the time they came out, this came out, I couldn't afford her at all. So I decided the best way was to avoid any agents because I knew, based on my experience when I was working with Tim, there was going to be months and months of waiting for an answer. So I decided to look for the unsigned best possible actors I could find, and that's what I did. I cast one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, but I couldn't find Ray. That was always finding the right kid. And when Connor came in, he did a, an, a, an audition on tape. And I saw it. And I go, you know, this kid's good. Maybe he could do Gabe. Maybe it could be a good role for him. And he goes, no, no, no. I was auditioning for Ray. And I go, I know. I just don't think you're it. But what are you looking for? Well, well the character's got to be doing this and this. Two days later, he sent me tape after tape after tape until he narrowed down. And I go, here you go. It's not about who looks the part, it's about who's an actor 
and he's going to transform himself into playing this kid. And as I read one time, people ask me, what's like to be a director? And the job of, of a director is to fix all the fuck-ups you do during casting. <laughs> Basically, that's what it is. Yeah. So when these guys were performing, each one of them, I was like, thank you, because you are making me look good. These kids were just natural and committed. But I went through a lot of, you know, frogs to find all these princesses and princesses. And, <laughs> and, well, and they were committed. They show every day early and not a problem. They said there was no egos. It was great. And by the way, we, you probably one of the first people that talk about the budget this way, because we tried to say the movie was under a quarter of a million now and this is the reason because now people come and they go so if i give you thirty thousand dollars you can make us another movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never guess, uh, again this yeah. again well i i i, I again I, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i mention it because you know how many 30 million 50 million 100 million dollar movies are shit oh i oh and i see it right? plenty of two million dollar movies that i go oh god what i could have done with that and great stories and, you know, there is some engine. I mean, I often feel like true ingenuity, right, is driven by constraint. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, when you don't have what you want or need, you figure it out in ways right. that are perhaps more innovative or more creative, more clever than if you'd had a bunch of money. You just it's throw true. Money at it, you know, I've seen uh, that with cinematographers. I've seen him. People like Carlos who work at all levels, he will figure things out. But there was a time when I wanted to work with cinematographers. They had a lot of experience because they didn't have all the toys, all the yeah. tools they usually get. Mm -hmm. They feel handicapped. They're like, I can't do that. I need this and I need that and I need this and I need right. that. Well, the, but, the, the, but, uh, the when you're not that level, yeah, you got to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I really appreciated about the movie is for me was that it made me nostalgic for <laughs> Portage, Indiana. <laughs> It you, made, never, you never thought that would happen. It, it made me nostalgic <laughs> for Gary, Indiana. I mean, I was in those cars with my friends driving around trying to score a fucking joint. Yeah. You know, I was driving around. I was sat in those cars getting high, like talking about, you know, Steve's parents' divorce or the SATs that, you know, none of us were prepared for or, you know. And so watching that and capturing the scenes, you know, around Gary and around, you know, Northwest Indiana, for me, you know, resonated and made me nostalgic because of the, of the humanity there. I mean, so here's a story for you, right? So when I moved to L.A. from Chicago, so my journey was quickly, you know, born in Gary, grew up in Portage, went to Indiana University Northwest. Moved to Canada for a year in 91, came back in 93, moved to Chicago to finish college at Columbia College, lived downtown Chicago until 2001 when I moved to Los Angeles. OK, so I'm in Los Angeles. I've been here a month or so. I'm out to dinner with some Hollywood entertainment folks because my girlfriend, now my wife, worked in the business. So I didn't have any friends out here except for her friends. So we would we go to this dinner. And so I'm sitting next to these two guys. And the one guy says to me, you know, we're you know making conversation, whatever. He says, well, you know, what do you think about L.A.? And I said, oh, you know, just got here, you know, traffic sucks, you know, like, what do you, you know, what do you want me to say? You know, I don't know. And he said, well, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Chicago. 
and you know, forgive me, right? Because those of us from uh-huh. Portage, we say we claim Chicago. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, no everybody knows. from the yeah, right, right, right. So, so I said, well, I'm from Chicago, and you know, in my defense, I'd lived downtown for you know, damn near ten years. So, you know, I could say that. So, he goes, I say this. I'm from Chicago, and that quick he goes, oh, the flyover city, and. I'd never heard that phrase before. And I, I said, really, I said, flyover city. Wait, what do you mean flyover city? And he said, well, you know, you fly over Chicago to get from LA to New York. And that quick, I go, that quick, I go, you know what? Keep flying over, <laughs> keep flying over because, <laughs> because you don't have a fucking clue. The kind of people that are in the Midwest that are in Chicago, that are in the region these are good people, hardworking people, you know, human beings trying to, to make a lemonade out of lemons because they happen to be born in a place that was, when I was growing up, the murder capital of the country, you know, per capita. So fuck you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Fuck you. And so, so, what I, so what I'm getting at is the movie for me really – communicated the humanity of the area that maybe a lot of people wouldn't appreciate or the new one because it's very subtle it's also very nuanced like that's the other thing i love about the movie it's like it said a lot with a like it said a lot with a little it said a lot with silence you know often you know musicians talk about the music uh, you know the music that's made you know in between the notes or you know bars of rest you know in, in the silence you let the movie breathe and there was a lot communicated in, in quiet moments that also felt very true to the area. I mean, people that are from the region, I might be the only person that this doesn't apply to are really people. A few words. True. True. <laughs> or, or they talk too much. But so many, but, but so many folks are just, you know, they're just people, you know, the, the, you know, yeah. some might say, you know, still rivers run deep or whatever. I, I, I don't know that that's always the case uh, either. <laughs> but anyway, I, 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 I'm just, yeah, I hope I'm trying to get my points across yeah. here because we sometimes, sometimes when I see people who are like fans of my book or fans of the movie, sometimes they, I don't really love Northwest Indiana. You know, I don't like when I was growing up there, it, region right was a derogatory term. Yeah. It was something that people call, it was a name that people called you. Imagine if, you know, we call them FIPS, fucking Illinois people. Yeah. You know, we call them FIPS. Imagine if FIPS one day said, hey, we're FIPS. Isn't this cool? Let's call each other FIPS. Let's yeah. have a FIP festival and we'll sell each other FIP merchandise and FIP t-shirts. And, yeah. 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 and we have FIP the movie. So now, so when I wrote Region Rat, or like Region Rat was a derogatory term. It's a very sad story. When I, when I lived in Seattle, I remember one time being at a club and seeing a really pretty girl. And I went up to her and talked a little shit to her. And she asked me where I was from. And we never said Northwest Indiana because that was embarrassing. So we said Chicago. So I said, I'm from Chicago. And she asked me a few more questions and figured out I was actually from Indiana. Then she asked me a few more questions. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'm actually from Northwest Indiana. And she was from somewhere in the Midwest. I don't remember. But she looked at me and she went, ew, (laughs) (laughs) when I said that. And I was all the way out on the West Coast. But now, like, people are all, like, region proud. Like, to me, like, where you're from what nationality you are, you know, I'd like to get to know people as people, 
you know, and now a lot of people are like, oh, I'm I'm a region writer. I'm from the region and they're really proud of it. So when they watch the movie, I think a lot of people expect it to be some kind of glorification of Northwest Indiana or when they read my book that it's about Northwest Indiana or it's going to say something that Northwest Indiana is great. And it really doesn't say any of that stuff. In fact, in my book in particular, it's, you know, somewhat insulting, you know, to the area. So that's tough for people, I think. Do I hear somebody vacuuming? (laughs) Yeah, my gardener's got the leaf blower. (laughs) (laughs) So, So our listeners should know, we might have said this at the top of the show, but this is our first Skype recorded podcast. So... For listeners who are wondering why the audio is weird and why they're hearing leaf blowers in the background, it's in large part because of the fact that we're doing this over Skype right now. Although we have had problems with leaf blowers before, <laughs> but, but that's that's uh, we won't we won't get into that. I want to go back to what Rich was saying. Hopefully, the leaf blower is not too annoying. But you know, it is interesting, right? Because I couldn't wait to leave. Yeah, I felt the same way. You know, I was I was grateful for my friends and my family, but I was so happy Chicago was 45 minute South Shore train right away, you know, and thank goodness we had the beach as well. I mean, I found the, the, the good parts to enjoy, but I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. And, you know, now I guess at 48, you know, you romanticize your roots and what have you. But I guess maybe also I'm sort of one of the lucky ones. Uh, <laughs> then managed to escape. And, you know, so maybe it's easy. I, I just, you know, never having seen Gary in a movie before. I think that was part it's, of it. It's, it's, it's been not? done. It's oh, been I, done. Okay. okay. So seen. there's a, there's a movie called original gangsters. Okay. Who was, uh, well, go, go watch the music man. Not, I haven't oh. seen the music man. Original gangsters was, uh, had stars in it. It was about Gary. It was about gangs and Gary and, if I recall, it was probably like in the mid nineties when it came out, but they had celebrities in this movie and they flew everyone out to Gary and put everybody up in Gary for a couple months and shot a whole movie there. It's a really funny movie. You should check it out. I will. Uh, Original gangsters is what it's called. Okay. Uh, But they spent, uh, I think they spent about three and a half million dollars and I think they only made like two and a half million back. So they mm-hmm. lost a good amount of money. And sometimes you look at a movie like that and you're like, well, what if they hadn't spent all that money, you know, putting people up in the hotel <laughs> for, <laughs> for well, two months? But that, that, that line item couldn't have been too much. I mean, where did they say the, the Holiday Star Theater yeah. in Maripol? Right. I mean, like, that was the nicest uh, hotel in the area. Yeah. So, guys, I have a couple of things that I'd like to address and, and then, you know, we can sign off and go about our go about our lives because I know you have important things to get to beyond this simple podcast of ours. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, what do you want people to know about this project? Like I've been sort of asking questions and things that are sort of interesting to me, but you know, I'm gonna open the the floor up here and and just ask you guys, I mean, what do you want us to know about your project? What what questions haven't people asked you that you want to speak to? Well, one of the things that happened is was the uh, the first concern we had with the movie is that if we made this movie, nobody was going to care about the little little part of the, ta- the country, you know, about this underground culture of kids that have no hope and not much of 
guidance for themselves. And as I was casting the film since 2004 and then in 2008 and 2012, I will meet all these kids from Pittsburgh, Hamilton, Canada. And they will go, dude, that was my life. Yeah. I'm that guy. I experienced that. Not necessarily that one character will go all over. And I realized there are pockets all over. It's not just the region. There's yeah. areas and in, in special places, imagine like Pittsburgh, Detroit, Hamilton, any still town that went kaput to the NAFTA or something like that, where parents had to go work two, three jobs, and these kids uh, are just out there hanging out. And you always hear the small towns are the great ones to grow up with kids, and then the big cities are the devil. But I realized in the big cities, there's a lot of stuff to do, and these little pockets all over the country, there's a lot of kids that felt very sick, and I noticed that the audience was just expanding. Now, as a parent now, what I saw in this movie was that how much these kids are affected by the lack of guidance. Because all you have is teenagers making decisions on their own with the logic of an 18-year-old. And a lot of times they make bad decisions because parents are not very involved. I don't know if it's because they're too busy working to make, you know, two, three incomes work. But I, I felt in the movie that there was the lack of parenting involvement that as a parent I wanted to address. So for parents, they might say, you know, people might say, oh, it's a pot movie. Well, yeah, the character was a pothead, you know, mm. so I'm not going to hide it. That's how they talk. That's what they did. And one of the biggest compliments we had is, you know, my kids talk like that. They sound like real teenagers. It's not creative dialogue. It's, this sounds real. But for adults, it's, it's more about just a goofy movie about smoking pot. It's about the reality of uh, what some kids go in the country where if they got a job at McDonald's, they feel like they made it. And I feel like they, there has to be more of a ray of hope for all these kids. There was a parent from one of my cast members that had the opportunity to bring the film and play it at movie theater for a special screening for a group of foster kids. It was yeah. just, here's the movie. And he said he was very shocked when he saw a couple of girls crying. I mean, the movie was meant to be a drama. Never wanted, one thing we knew, we didn't want to make a goofy comedy goofy pot comedy it was always meant to be drama dark comedy at best yeah with humor yeah to, right in order to swallow right. the drama you have to just keep going with yeah. real life but uh, i found it very interesting that some of these foster kids that probably suffer the lack of guidance and parent parents he they, they really he just told me how they related to the movie they were like oh my god this is weird you know i i, I felt like i know these kids so from a parent, parental point of view, I wish parents would take a look and maybe they can see themselves in the mirror. For teenagers, I hope they get to see it because, again, another mirror where they might realize that you can use, especially in this world of social media, not everything they say about you is true. And you just have to go with your heart and just ignore the voices that tell you you can't do this. I'm currently a judge for a film festival, for a high school film festival where just kids and their teens make movies. And it's dramatic how many little films I get about depression and suicide stuff. It's shocking. I, I mean, what are the Beatles stuff? What are, you know, in the 60s, people doing happy things? All these movies I'm getting from teenagers are about depression and suicide and the afterlife is kind of scary. But that's not new. Kids always had some kind of force pushing against it. And in this case... Ray, the main character, he's his own nemesis. 
until he's like, okay, something had to happen for him, for him to just wake up. So it's not the place, you know, it's the people you hang out with. Just gotta design your own. Um, it's the psycho life. Is what yeah, it is. the psycho. Yeah, it's a, it's crazy you gotta, ass. You, you crazy gotta break, ass break the cycle. <laughs> I never understood the kids that say, "Oh, my dad smoke all the time and drink all the time," and they drink all the time. And I'm like, "Well, didn't you see that happen before? And you didn't like it. Why are you doing it?" But it happens. But more than what I want people to get it is, I just want him to know about it because the biggest problem is a movie like this doesn't have an outlet like a studio film. We don't have the marketing tools, and nowadays we are competing directly with them. There is no outlet for independence, so I'm thankful that Gravitas Ventures saw the movie, and they said, dude, this is a cute little movie, but we're going to put it out there. And they put it on tons of areas. You can get it on DVD. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it in so many download formats. But if people don't know about it, they're not going to watch it. So we're just trying to get the word out so people can watch it. And... One of the biggest frustrations with this movie, when you were talking about the budget, is that how you felt like you related to the place. My biggest concern was that I wasn't going to portray that because I wasn't born there. I didn't grow up in that area. And uh, Rich was kind enough to give me a tour of the area. He showed me around where people did, where they go, where they hang out. And as I was writing the script or during the movie, I would keep sending texts to Richards and asking questions. How did this feel? What would you have done? just to try uh, to stay as true as possible. But as we were cutting scenes from the movie, that's when I started writing a pilot for a series because uh, there's so much in the book that is fun, just fun. But the movie has to have this structure where it begins and it goes in the middle and it has to finish. Where in a TV series, you know, you can go for two, three years at least with bits that are not necessarily designed to move the plot forward, just slices of life. So I wrote a pilot that we submitted to Amazon and they didn't like it, but we got an award for that pilot, the Creative Writing Awards, hoping that we can get a series going. And we had a plan, like at least a 12 episode series where I was able to, all the stuff, the, all the stuff you saw in the movie, fill it up with all the stuff I wasn't able to put in the movie. Wow. Rich, what do you, what do you want to tell us about the project? I want people to know that we're not rich kids. You know, I think when I when I meet a lot of people in Northwest Indiana, or even like when I talk to old friends, and they they think you know they know that we have, that I have a movie out now, and they they say things like, "Oh, you know, did you get a new car, or did you uh, are you moving to a mansion?" And they're halfway serious because they don't understand that just because you make a movie and it's on Google Play doesn't mean you've made it. You know, we still need people to actually buy this movie or we're screwed. Like we were if people don't if people don't start buying our movie and if we don't make our budget back, who's to say that Javier's ever going to be able to make another film again? You know, I can always sit down and write stuff on my computer and keep it on my computer for myself forever like I have been. But there's so many people who really super talented people who sacrificed time and money for this movie. I want people to know that we need, you know, if they're halfway interested in this movie, we need them to pull the trigger and rent it or buy it. We're not rich. You know, this isn't something we did for fun, you know, that we can write this off as a loss and we've got another few hundred thousand dollars over here to try it again. 
we're not in that situation at all. So I want I want people to know that that we really need their support, and and we we appreciate everybody who's given us support so far because we know that we don't have the greatest movie in the world, and we're not the you know greatest people in the world. But we hope that we made a movie that people from both the region and Hollywood can appreciate. And I think, you know, what kind of a difficult balancing act that could be between the two, two worlds, you know, I I don't know if, I don't know if you told this to uh, Scott, do you know about the screenings we had at the region? At the region? No, I I knew that you were doing screenings, I think in Portage and Hobart, but I didn't, I don't know. Yeah, we did did too, because that was key to see how people will react over there. Mm -hmm. That was key. That was key to figure out how they how they knew. But since we didn't have any famous people, we couldn't find any theatrical distribution. So we were able to arrange two uh, screenings at an AMC, another one at Cinemark, and we sold out both shows. So right. the people from there were very supportive. Yeah, we sold out the two shows. I wasn't there, but Rich was at both, so he can tell you about it. But I was very happy that they supported it, and those are our best. Commercials, people telling other people, I saw that movie. And I tell them, if you like it, please write a review, uh, go to Rotten Tomatoes. And if you didn't like it, tell us why you didn't like it. In this case, you're the first person that tells me something about the movie because we hardly have been reviewed by anybody. We don't have famous actors, so we don't get reviews in Rotten Tomatoes from professional critics. So it's always interesting to see what the feedback is. But if we don't have it, it's kind of hard to know. So I want to put an exclamation point on this for our listeners, because the majority of our listeners are artists themselves, or at least art lovers. They are driven by culture and want to support culture. And so I want to make sure that your point, Rich, is emphasized to our listeners. So listeners you got to watch this movie. You've got to support these guys. You've got to put down the, how much does it cost to stream this thing? Well, you can rent it for like 399 or something yeah, like 399, that. Yeah, 3.99, 3.99. Not only will make the difference for our friends Javier and Rich, uh, our fellow artists, but by the way, it's a fucking good movie. <laughs> so, you know, this isn't charity. This <laughs> you're going to enjoy this movie. And it is a sublime I find it to be a sublime very sophisticated story and, and production to row with direction. And you have to understand that they're doing this under such constraints. Like to me, that's what the miracle and that's one of the miracles about this because most look, your movie is a business. Every movie is a business, right? And 90% of businesses in America fail. Yeah, it's true. And you guys didn't fail. You kept at it. You never, ever, 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 ever quit. You kept going. And that's a huge lesson for all of us and for everyone listening. And, you know, to see what you were able to do with, you know, the, the cards stacked against you with so many limitations to me, uh, I think is something to be forever proud of. And, you know, you guys deserve so much credit for pulling this off. I mean, this is a fucking miracle what you guys did. I'm uh, surprised. I can tell you that. <laughs> I can tell you that much. Well, and for you, right? yeah, well, right? I mean, well, you, yeah. you wrote, you wrote, you started writing something for your own sheer pleasure or own sheer health mental health, spiritual health, whatever, you had no plays on a movie. You had no agenda. So for you, this journey has to be surreal. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's interesting. The, you know, the, the only piece I can take from it, you know, 
that why it became a movie is is I think when I write I I don't I've seen a lot more movies than I've read books I'll say that and so I probably write in that I probably write in that style of the way I might see a movie or a TV show playing out but yeah I never I still write this for the same reasons today and I I think if I ever get away from that mm-hmm. if I ever start to think of you know, am I writing, you know, I, I've written, I used to be in advertising. I've written thousands of commercials and I had a goal for every one of those commercials. I don't remember a single one of them that I ever wrote because it just gets to be, you know, like mechanical after a while. And I don't ever want to feel that way about writing. So whatever, if I ever do anything, even though I know how to write and I, I could I could write something that someone tells me to write. Um, it'll never feel the same as, you know, me just getting on my computer and doing it for myself. And it'll probably never be as good as that either, just to to have, be able to write with raw emotion and just true feelings without the burden of what people may think or, or worrying about what people may say to you about it. So, yeah. Well, so before we wrap up, I want to just say a couple of things. One is, And I guess one question first, Rich, what do I need to do to get one of those posters that is hanging behind you? Because Uh, that is genius. Yeah. uh, You have to ask my friend Javier for one of those. That is the first poster I I I designed that poster. That was what we use for all the festivals. I can send you one. Uh, It's genius. It's absolutely genius. But as we got into the distribution, the company wanted a few options. Yeah. So I went ahead and designed about four and they chose this one yeah which i think was a mistake but you know that's me i'm like (laughs) it's orange it jumps but i mean but if you go to itunes stuff like that yeah you see a pattern of things yeah yeah that's 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 a a thumbnail what he just showed you scott is a thumbnail when people click on it to rent it on the internet see this is this is a poster you hang up at the theater so right that's that's one of the reasons why they didn't yeah even them. even the people that are presenting the film on the foreign markets, they go mm-hmm. to Cannes and all these markets that are representing the film. They didn't like that either. They don't poster. They have their own thing. So I wanted I, to go a little retro on it because I'm a child of the 70s. I grew up watching Jaws and yes. French Connection. The yes. kind of movies I want to do, they're always going to have that taste from like a 70s movie. So I wanted to do something a little retro with a poster, but... You work for the festivals, but now, you know, when they decide, that's what they do. Well, kudos to the poster. I would love to talk to you offline about how we can oh, get one. I, I definitely want one of those. Before we wrap up, I, I want to spend just a few seconds shouting out to your cast. You know, Connor Williams, Natasia Halab- Halabi, right? Halabi, yep. yeah. He's, yeah. He's right no. closer to, I'm going to send that one. Awesome. Uh, I love it. And Nova Gaver? Yes. Ga- um, Nova Gaver. Nova Gaver, Gaver, excuse yeah. me. Who am I missing? Other Harry, Harry Sean DeMario. Yeah, Sean DeMario Jeff Evans. Harlow. Uh, Samantha John Hodges. Hayne. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, just, right. everybody's yeah, great. so great. Rishi so, Das. Harry Holmes, Jeff Harlow, Samantha, Nova, Rishi, everybody. I mean, I'm so thankful for all these kids because they work so hard. John Hayden, they all, all these kids. I was just impressed when we were there one day on the set and we shot. And I saw all the stuff. I'm like, can we do this for 20 days? Somebody's going to get sick. Something yeah. is going to happen. Right. And every day, this kid's Connor took the biggest. I mean, Connor is in every scene. 
There's nothing with no corner. It's all from his point of view. So I couldn't have a subplot. Yeah. I wanted to stay with him. He was every day on the set, an hour and a half early, regardless of when we wrapped up the night before. Right. And he knew his lines. Wow. And so it was funny because the kid was getting so tired. Sure. I mean, he was just exhausted by that. And he was so tired, I suggested him to, and I don't think he ever drank coffee. And then we were doing the scene. <laughs> Do you remember the scene where uh, this is a scene that's supposed to be very serious? And he was like this. <laughs> with a big smile on his face. I go, you got to tone it down. And he went down and get a bunch of coffee. I go, you got to throw me like a half-calf. Yeah. What is that? Like, it's like half-caffeine. But it, it took a few, a few takes because he was just so hyper. But I mean, the kid worked his ass over for all this time. And then after that, I took him to do the voiceover recording, which it was another few hours of just him working. So yeah, Connor was a trooper, a true actor and committed. He's one of those kids that he doesn't care about watching the movie so much. He just enjoys the process of doing it. Mm -hmm. And after that, the promotion, the glory and all that, I don't see, I don't think he's not interested in. Yeah, He yeah, just yeah. wants to be in it. He just yeah. wants to do the takes and all that stuff. Right, right. Which is great. It's great to find people like that. I didn't have models. Right. I didn't have guys that want to be famous. Yeah. They all kids they just wanted to 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 do the work. Do the work. Yeah. Right. Well, so you know, last but not least, I want to make sure our listeners know exactly where to find the movie, where they can stream it. Once and for all, please tell us again, guys, director Javier Reyna and Rich Leskowski, tell me where we can stream right. the movie. I'll tell you. Yeah. So if you have cable, you can get it right now on Comcast. AT&T, DirecTV, Cox Communications, I say Cox, Fish <laughs> Network, Verizon, Frontier, <laughs> Southern Link, Mediacom. In Canada, you can watch it in Shaw, Telus, Eastlink TV. If you want to get a DVD, the DVDs, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, Target, Walmart, mostly online, because now they're reducing the amount of DVDs so little. Yeah. at the stores that yeah. you just have to do it online. Yeah. If you want to download it or just buy it on video, the Redbox online, Vimeo movies, Microsoft, including the Xbox. If you have an Xbox, you can just watch it there. Voodoo movies, YouTube movies, Google Play. And it's supposed to be also on iTunes, but there was a glitch at iTunes. So I'm waiting to hear what happened. But iTunes be... is cock-blocking us. Is what <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> iTunes is cock-blocking us. So that should be up pretty soon because Gravitas was like, what happened? All platforms were good except this one. And Amazon is right now on, on sale for DVD and Blu-ray. But pretty soon it's supposed to also be available as a download. Okay. And that will be the process, I think, for 60 days after they go to the rental and all that. Okay. And then it will move to the subscription-based thing. Mm -hmm. which is when they will go to Netflix mm -hmm. and pitch it to Netflix and we'll see. But again, I think for what I read, Netflix is not buying a lot of movies nowadays. They just put make movies now or Hulu or Amazon Prime or something like that. And then I, I don't know. Again, it's a small movie. There's no star. So it's kind of it's a hard sell in some ways. Right. To network. Yeah, it's really it turns out at the end of the day, right? Movie making ain't so glamorous. No, it's no, not. <laughs> no. People told me it was hard to make a movie, but I knew it was harder to sell it. People well, always talk about, I want to make a movie, but it, yeah, yes, just the beginning. Right. That's the easy part. 
Right. That's the fun part. That's right. Maybe it's the fun part. Maybe. It's the fun um, part when you're making it. Getting the money is horrible. As you yeah, know, 13 yeah. years of trying to do this, by making the movie is the best. And after that, you can relax a little bit, but now you're in a clock because movies have a two-year expiration date. Right. And after that, oh, it's too old. Now nobody cares anymore because now it's too old, even though nobody's seen it. So it's very important you get it. I think you have 18 months, they call shelf life. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It's like they expire and they get all acid. I don't know. <laughs> well, guys, I want to thank you for being on the show today. No, Javier and Rich, you guys, you guys, yeah, you guys are a real inspiration. And, you know, we wish you nothing but the best, all the success in the world. And just do me one last favor. Make me one last promise. Be a guest again. Will you come back to the show in a few uh, Whenever months? Whenever you want to uh, talk, talk to us. Yeah. Okay, good. Sure. Sure. I have sure. three movies ready to go. We'll circle back and talk movie making again because you guys are on the front lines and you represent kind of the, the, the full package, you know, behind the camera, in front of the camera, getting these movies made. It's a hard, hard effort to blood, sweat and tears. And your story is an important one for any person out there that has any inkling, I think, to get into the business to try to tell their stories, because it is like anything worthwhile in life, hard fucking work. And you guys are a real inspiration. Congratulations on all of your hard work and good luck. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the interview. Well, I appreciate you being on. Hope you had fun. Tell all your friends. Okay. Not real art well, is this uh, is where you're at, and we'll be posting the episode soon, so I'll keep you posted on that. Okay. And thank you for uh, being on today. You have a beautiful evening. All right. Thank, thank you. you. See you guys. Take it easy. Cheers.